reason. We're going to be uh, in Ephesians 4, chapter 31 and 32. Now I feel like we've done had us a lot of church already today. So um, we're going to finish these two verses, though. Treb is uh, with his family. They're uh, driving down to the beach to get a little vacation before their their uh, Cooper just got out of school, and he's got one year left. It's probably his last summer at home. Uh, Haley starts an internship in like a week, so they took, had a little slice, and they're trying to get a little bit more family time before, uh, before all of their chicks leave the nest. So uh, they'll be back next week, and hopefully uh, I need to be finished with these two verses by then, so we're going to do it anyway. So as you know, we've been marching through the book of Ephesians for the last, uh, I don't even know, it's been a while. I kind of lost, lost count, but over the past Several weeks, about six weeks, we've really been digging in at about a one or two verse pace, looking at this idea of putting off the old self and putting on the new and what that looks like. We've been calling it the great exchange. And the reality is that God has given us truth about who we are and is now calling us to live according to that truth. That's the first half of Ephesians is about the believer's identity. The second half is about the life of the believer. How does it look like to live out real life in real time? with a real gospel and a real salvation. And while he's not drawing that to a close, we are going to come to the end of of some of this exchange language. And we're going to do that in verses 31 and 32. So let's read it and dive in. He says, Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ, God forgave you. So your version may say, let all something be taken away, or, and the NIV says, get rid of. The reason for that is because the, the verbs here are a little wonky. And so in English, you know, we have imperative verbs, you have passive verbs, like you're being acted upon by a passive verb. And so the, the let something happen to you, that would be passive which is what some versions say. And in the original language, it's in this uh, aorist passive imperative. So it's a passive imperative, which seems contradictory. The idea being, it is a non-negotiable, get rid of this thing, get rid of these things, put them off. And there's a lot of these in this chapter. And he's going to continue to give imperative verbs. Do this, do this, be this, act like this. But this is interesting because it it is a passive imperative. So it says, get rid of, this says get rid of, other versions say, let all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and every form of malice be taken from you. And the verb to be taken is this idea of a, it's the word for to pick something up, to lift something like an anchor. So you've got a boat that's anchored and the thing is stuck into the seabed and you lift up this anchor and the boat can then go about and sail. The, the picture then of what's going on here that Paul is explaining is not just don't be bitter, don't be angry, don't slander. It is You must, and there is no escaping this, you must allow God to take these things from you. That's really the heart of what is going on here. But to get rid of it, we have an active process in that. And the the thing that came to mind when I was thinking about what does it look like is, have you ever walked in on a room where a toddler has colored on a wall with a Sharpie? They know that they've done something bad right away. Like you walk in and they've written or painted, or colored, beautiful things all over the wall. And you walk into the room, and the kids got the marker, right? Like, they're, no words are needed. They know they're in trouble. And they look at you, and what's the first thing that comes out of a parent's mouth? 
it's, you know, what did you do? What are you doing? Which is always the dumbest question from a parent, right? Like, I, I can see what you're doing. Or why did you do that? Well, they did it because they're sinners and they're four, you know. So the imperative that comes out, though, is often give me that marker. Give that to me. They've got the marker. And the first thing they want, the parent needs to make sure the child does not draw any more. So what do they say? Give it to me. Or if your kid's got something dangerous, hey, give it to me. You can say it nicely sometimes, but the give it to me is not an option. The parent does not come to the toddler who's been drawing on the wall and say, give me that marker. Give me the thing that you've been using to destroy things, right? A kid's four, it is a note, they're just having fun. They're learning, but the parent must remove the thing from the kid. So it's a give it to me, a command from the parent. The child has to give it to the parent, and the parent takes it away. That's a little bit of the picture of what we're getting here. God is saying, He's seeing us being angry, full of bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. And he's saying, get rid of it. Give it to me, and I will take it from you. Do you see that picture? And so there's a very active part going on in the life of the believer. The, uh, the Puritans would call it the mortification of sin. You have this idea of I'm actively killing the sin or else it will kill me. So I did that sin is our enemy, and these activities that are going on, I must actively be fighting against them. But the power that removes those is always the Lord's. Do you see the difference? So I'm not responsible to necessarily get rid of all those things. I'm responsible to turn it over to Christ. And that he and his power can take these things from me and then exchange them for what we're going to get into in just a minute. Does that make a little bit of sense in this process, this put-on, put-off thing? You are not required or able to necessarily to rid yourself of all these things. But you are required and empowered by the Holy Spirit to turn them over to him. And in his power, he can take them from you. Let him rid you of all of these things. So what are we getting rid of? We've got three-ish things that are kind of internal, external things, and then two that are very, very external. The first one is bitterness. So... The word for, for bitterness is this idea of, a, uh, the root word is a, a pointed thing like an arrow. And it's this idea of a bitter root, a bitter root that produces bitter fruit. Uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about it in chapter 12, where he warns us. He says, see to it, in 12.15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. This idea of bitterness being a root that can grow and destroy things and get in the way and break all kinds of things. Bitterness is the source of all manner of things. You hear us talk about all the time. Bitterness leads to resentment, which leads to death. We see it in marriage all the time. Someone gets bitter, they get hurt, and that bitterness doesn't get dealt with. They don't turn it over to the Lord, and it grows, and it festers, turns into resentment. I was feeling bitter against you. Now I'm building up a case against you in my mind, and then that will eventually lead to the death of the relationship if it's not dealt with. The phrase bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Have y'all heard that before? I looked for the root of that, and it's, nobody knows. And the internet has no idea. They said Carrie Fisher said it, who played Princess Leia. They uh, said all these other things. Someone said Aristotle. I don't know, I don't know who said it. Uh, I'm going to go with Aristotle because he's smarter and older. But the, I don't know if he's smarter than Carrie Fisher, I don't know, whatever. But anyway, the older the better, right? So the idea that bitterness is like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die is absolutely true. Bitterness just kills someone from the inside out. It rots them, and it rots your heart, and it's, that we have no reason to let it live in our heart. We live in a bitter world. There are people so 
overwhelmingly bitter. Just You can see them at the grocery store just like, mm, just bitter, bitter people. Like they're walking around sucking on a lemon. I guess that's sour. What's worse than a lemon? Something bitter like aspirin. Walking around just chewing aspirin all day long. It's terrible. You've heard, by the way, uh, we had a, talking about bitterness. There's a, Dramamine is remarkably, awfully, terribly bitter. If you've ever, ever eaten one, I don't recommend it. They make a chewable Dramamine. And when we lived in uh, Guatemala, we had all these mountain roads and our kids would get car sick. So we would try to feed them Dramamine so they wouldn't throw up. And then there was a chewable Dramamine, which we thought, we thought genius. Chewable, can't be that bad. Well, we would try to give it to our kids, and I'm going to tell a story in the deacon I didn't ask you about. He would not, at a point when he was like, I won't take it. I'll just be sick. We're like, no, you have to take it. We're the parent. Take the remedy. You have to do it. It was impossible. He, and the reason I finally understood is like, well, how bad can it be? So I ate one. It's the worst thing I've ever tasted in my life. It was like bitter, like down into my kidneys. I don't know how that works, but it was this bitterness that just got in. I couldn't get rid of it. I was like, Jenny, give me some gum, like drink something. It did not go away. It was better just to be sick on the road than to eat a chewable Dramamine. Bitterness is like that. It gets in and it just sticks and it stays and it causes trauma. This kid would not eat a chewable Dramamine if I paid a thousand dollars a day. Well, maybe for a thousand dollars, but it's awful and it's terrible for everyone around them. And there's a solution that we can give it over to the Lord. There's another uh, <clears throat> illustration which you all might have heard before in, I guess, all over the developing world. A way to catch monkeys. And monkeys are generally pretty clever, but they can take these little gourds and people who hunt monkeys. And they take a, the gourd and they cut a little hole in They put something sweet in there, candy or a sweet piece of fruit that the monkeys just love. And then they chain or they tie this uh, gourd to a tree. Monkey can reach into his little hand into the little bitty hole and make his fist around what he wants, but he can't pull his fist out because his fist is bigger than his little hand going in. And the monkey will just sit there and hold on to whatever's in that gourd, and the hunter can just walk up and club him. Boom. The monkey will scream and rage, but they won't let go of the stuff inside of the gourd. Bitterness is the same way. You can just hold on and hold on and hold on and hold on until the devil just walks up and just hammers you down. Or God's given you an option to give it to him and to let it go. So bitterness is this internal thing, and it's just this no good. Next word is a rage. Your Bible may say wrath. Uh, the root word of that is, is burn or burning. And it's this passionate anger. It, devo- it denotes like a, like a violent boiling over, a, a, a violent movement. And so it's not just, um, we're going to get to anger in a second, but it's, this is a bitterness or rage or wrath. It is Generally hot-tempered, it's fast, and it flares up and then dies down. You've ever experienced that? I've experienced it about a bazillion times. Every guy in here has probably gotten mad and thrown something, and you don't wish you'd thrown. You're working on a car, you're doing something, ah, you get mad and throw it. So maybe you haven't. Maybe you all are a lot holier than I am. But it's this idea of it snaps up, and it's very intense, but it's usually brief. It's like gas on the fire. You have a fire, boom, throw gas on, flares up, causes all kinds of trouble. This is this rage or wrath that he's talking about. It's quick, it's over, it's often violent. Does that make sense? You get a picture of it? The next word is anger. And this is not fast. If, if rage and uh, wrath are gas on the fire, this anger is, it is, a, it is burning coals. It is a bed of coals. It is established, it's settled, and it is uh, generally a chronic condition in the heart of a person. Have you ever met an angry person? Not someone who's like, flaring off all the time, but someone who's just angry 
And you could put any tiny, you could put a log, a giant log on this fire and it would catch. You don't have to kindle it. It is ready and it is hot. And this kind of anger generally seeks revenge as an outlet. Like I'm sitting here, I am burning, I am cooking, I am hot, but it's like, it's settled and it's quiet and it's deadly because I'm sitting in there and this bitterness is being fueled and it's angry and I'm thinking of a way to hurt the person that I'm angry at. You know here I'm talking about? You ever felt that way? Yes? Everybody's staring at me like they've never felt that way. Maybe I'm the only person who's ever been angry. So, but there's two different kinds of anger, wrath. This hot flaring wrath and this settled, chronic, abiding condition of anger. Both of them absolutely, terribly deadly. Move on to uh, the new, the NIV here says brawling. Your uh, versions may say clamor or uh, quarreling. The word here is really funny because it's an it's a onomatopoetic word, like, like slap or bam, like a word that sounds like what it is. And the Greek word is krauge, which sounds like a crow calling, krauge, krauge, or like a raven calling, right? And the scene is that this, or the idea is that you've got this, this brawling. It's something that is no longer internal. It's now very public, and it's loud, and it's like cacophonous, and it is problematic. It's when something has gone from, I am now, I was feeling this thing, I was feeling this bitterness, but man, now I'm talking about it. I'm making a clamor out of it. It may just be a little, a little din of a clamor between me and another person. Maybe I've started a little gossip. Maybe I've started a little rumor. Maybe I've started a little talking over here. Maybe I'm upset about this thing. I'm like, oh, I don't like this. I don't like this guy at work. Did you hear what this guy did? This guy did this. And then all of a sudden, the next thing you know, the entire office is talking about it. Or the entire school is talking about it. And there's this giant brawl. It is no longer two guys uh, saying snarky things at each other at the bar Everybody's brawling, the windows are open, and the fight is in the street. That's kind of the picture that we get here with this brawling. It is public, and it is loud, and it is damaging. Have you guys ever seen that before? Ever seen people do that? Ever seen a brawl? Oh, hopefully you guys have never seen a, like an actual brawl, but maybe you have. So anyway, this idea, though, of a public, like a soccer match. You ever seen a bunch of soccer hooligans go at it? They, uh, that's what we're talking about. It's not small, and it's no longer internal. It's very loud, it's large, and it's public making a scene. Next, you move on to slander. And uh, the Greek word is blasphemia here, which we get the word blaspheme, which we generally think of as a term of, like, I'm saying something negative against God, or I'm, uh, like, blaspheming the Holy Spirit. For in, in Greek, that language, that word is, is really just evil speaking against anybody else. Little translation is saying something that's evil. It's abusive speech, and it is words that are meant to hurt. So I'm going to ask you to pull up. I have this little picture here that I've kept for a long time. You see that little pencil drawing? That's slander. We've both been both of those people. You ever said something that just arrowed into somebody's heart and you knew it? You knew what would hurt and you said it anyway. You knew this person's insecurity and you used it against them. What about the person on the left? How are they feeling? They're wounded They've been hurt. This is what believers do to each other. Do you understand that? This is not a letter to unbelievers, people. This is a letter to the church. This is what children of God do to each other all the time. We do it online. We do it in person. We do it on a phone. We do it when we gossip. We do it when we talk. We use words that hurt people. Jesus is the what made flesh. The word made flesh 
flesh. What does he do with his words? He creates, he heals, he redeems. What can we do with ours? We can damage, we can destroy, and we can kill. Look at that picture. This is what humans do to each other all the time. And it can start from here. And the next thing you know, everybody's in trenches throwing artillery shells at everybody across Europe. This is how things happen. Somebody hurts somebody else. They don't resolve things. And boom, we get a war. He's telling us to get rid of these things. The last one, and you can uh, move off that slide if you want to. It makes everybody sad. So the last one, it says, along with every form of malice, it's kind of a catch-all and really the foundation from which all these other evil things come. A malice is really this idea of viciousness of character. And like if you, you know Spanish, the word malo or malo, like bad or evil. And it's the, the root word we get from in English, but this, this, this is, it's a desire to inflict injury. It's a deep-seated, often unexplainable desire to see another person suffer. Malice. Have you ever felt malice towards somebody? Just a thought of, man, I'd like to say, if I could say, I could, ooh, I could make this. Or I want, I want that person to hurt. I want to burn their house down. I want to do this. I, want to, I would love to see that. A guy that cuts you off on the highway, you're like, oh, man, I would love to see that guy just like. Grr, grr. Have you ever thought that? Yeah? You know, Jesus had hard words about the things that go on in our heart. You ever read the Sermon on the Mount? Like, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the yay. And he's like, hey, have you ever lusted after a woman? Yeah, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Oh, come on, Jesus. He's like, have you ever uh, said anything mean to your brother? You've murdered him in your heart. Ah, there's no escape. There's no escape because you can look at me and you can tell me you've never done those things, but you know your heart, and God knows your heart, and He wants to rid you of the things that we try to keep quiet in our heart. Bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. I looked up uh, some synonyms for malice, and it was, look at these. These are fun words, right? Spite, hate, venom, meanness, cruelty. Let me ask you a question. What kind of person do you want to be? You're going to be like, I want to be a person who's venomous. Yes, cruel. I want to be known as the meanest person you've ever met. I would love to be called a hater of people and a spiteful person. Do you really want to be like that? Really? That is what a person who has malice in their heart is like. I looked up uh, other words for uh, antonyms of, of malice, and these are going to sound familiar. First one was love. Second was hospitality. Hospitality. You ever thought of hospitality is the opposite of malice? You're like, instead of Wishing evil against you, I want to bring you into my home and love you. Wow, what a picture of the gospel, right? Someone who is kind, kindness is the opposite of malice. So these are things that we're supposed to turn over to the Lord. He sees you coloring on the wall, and he walks in and he says, give me that marker. You can back away if you want to. Take all that malice and bitterness and anger and rage and just stick it in your little heart and run the other way. Guess who's going to run after you? The Lord, because he's a shepherd and he follows the sheep that he loves. He pursues your heart. If you have put your faith in Jesus, he pursued you while you were a sinner, an enemy of his, and he drew you to himself and he redeemed you. 
He will continue to pursue you. His work in you is not done. If you've never, ever believed in Jesus, God is pursuing you now, and he's calling you to himself. He's calling you to the cross where every person must deal with their sin to come before a holy God and say, I have sinned against you. I repent from my sin. I turn away from it, and I turn to Jesus. Save me, Lord Jesus. And then he will keep saving you all the way home. And that's why he's calling us to get rid of those things. Quit damaging one another. But there's a great exchange, right? It's not just what do we do, not what do we not do wrong, but what does God want us to live? How does he want us to live? Well, in verse 32, it says be. So it's interesting because that verb is no longer this, uh, this imperative or passive imperative. It's just an imperative. And it's the be verb. It is this is who you are. Be what? Kind. And what? Compassionate. Your version may say tenderhearted. That's probably a better translation. Tenderhearted. Toward who? One another. The people in the church. Forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. So that idea of being. Remember in, in, in Ephesians, this, the first whole chapter is talking about the believer's identity and who we are in Christ. I encourage you to go back there and read it. Read, the, read chapter 1, like 1 verse 3 through 2.10. This is who the believer is. So because of who you are now in Christ, this is what we are to do. We are to be kind. That word actually means serviceable, which is kind of a funny word for kindness. And it's, the, it's also translated when Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word for easy is the same word being translated here for kind. It means uh, able to be of use. So that when a, a, a yoke was made for an ox, and this is actually really probably an exposition of Matthew 11, but it works here. So when a yoke is made for oxen, they kind of rough it out because not every oxen is built the same. And so you've got a little bit skinnier ox, a little bit fatter ox, and so you have the yoke, but it needs to fit well or else it's going to chafe the animal and the animal's not going to be able to pull it, right? It needs to be serviceable. A, a, a yoke that the animal can't use is worthless. So if you're going to put this thing on the animal, they would come and they would fit it on the animal and then they would, they would be roughed out and then they would uh, individually fit it just for that animal. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all for a yoke. There wasn't one for you either, by the way. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, he fits a yoke for you. But the idea is that the kindness in that is that they, the person who's making the yoke sees the needs and the limitations of the animal, and then they form the yoke around their limitations. That is what we are supposed to do with people. A kind person looks to another person and sees their weaknesses, their disabilities, their, uh, their limitations, and then they create and they form and they love that person according to their need. Do you see that? A kind person is looking at another person and saying, how is that person limited? What are they struggling with? What are they suffering with? And how can I serve them? That's kindness. It's not just that, oh, I want to be kind and like pet a puppy. Like, it's great. Like pet puppies. That's good. But being kind to humans means that you're thinking about what do they need? What does this person need now? And how can I meet that need? Because when I'm thinking that way, bitterness and anger and all that stuff, they kind of go away because I'm thinking about someone else. So be kind. The idea for uh, <clears throat> compassion or, or tenderheartedness is another word that's hard to, uh, to translate into English. You just don't have a word. Uh, it's... Um, it's really the word and, and the Greek word. It's like a very strong word. It's like for bowels and spleen. It's like your innards. And so 
when it says to have or to be compassionate or to be uh, tenderhearted towards someone, it's this idea of the very things that make up the guts inside of you. I want you to pour those things out onto other people. I want you to feel something like you feel deeply. Like if you've ever said, oh, it broke my heart, or I just felt in my gut. We have these words that we try to use in our language to convey there's something going on inside of me, a feeling that I have that I have toward another person. But it is always something that moves to action. Compassion is never I feel bad. Compassion is I feel bad about this thing and then I'm going to do something about it. Kindness and compassion are always looking to the need of another person, then you feel a desire to help them, and then you do it. It's like the opposite of bitterness. It's the opposite of malice. In malice, you feel evil towards someone, and then you plan evil to do it to hurt them. In kindness, you feel mercy and compassion and tenderhearted towards someone, and then you take that kindness and you apply it in serving that person. You see the absolute stark difference there? He's calling us to a radically different life, people. He is not calling us to a life that is just, how good am I doing today? What is my best life now? How am I thriving? He's calling you to serve other people. That is the gospel. You understand that, right? The gospel is not just that you're saved. The gospel is you are saved for good works. Now walk in them. And finally, this is the easy one. We can just gloss over this one. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Um, forgiveness gets thrown around a lot. Like we say with the kids all the time, you know, forgive. And, and they sing a little song, you know, be kind to one another, Ephesians 4.32. So we sing it to our kids and they're a little, I don't know that they, I guess they still sing it sometimes, but forgiving, forgiveness. It's a word the culture throws around. And it's a word our culture has very little concept of how to do. And if you just were to look at our world and say, do we live in a forgiving society? No. Do we live in a forgiving culture? Man, you can't screw up at all. If you posted something 12 years ago on social media, someone can dig it up and find it. Are they seeking to forgive you? No. They're seeking to bury you, to use it against you. Why? Well, because lost people are broken. Just a quick reminder again, lost people are broken. So when lost people act like lost people, don't be surprised. Now, when a believer acts like that, you can call them out. You can say, hey, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, borrowing, slander, and every form of malice. And be kind to me. I'm struggling here. It's okay. You can do that. They need you to do it. Someone's got to say to the other, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, stop being mean and be nice. It's not that complicated. God is telling everybody on social media, on a text, on a phone call, in your office, in the store, as you vote, as you talk, as you drive on the road, as that guy cuts you off, as you pay your taxes, be kind. Tenderhearted and forgiving. So it says, forgive, and there's this little added thing, as in Christ God forgave you. So I want to look back real quick at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. Incredible, gosh, this is just such a great book. Anyway, in verse 7 of chapter 1, same book. It's hard not to go back and just read the whole thing. We're just going to read 7. This phrase, in him, because it says, just as in Christ, God forgave you. Remember that phrase, in him, in Christ, is repeated over and over and over and over and over again in chapter 1. One of those is in verse 7. It says, in him, or in Christ, we have redemption. How? Through his 
blood. This is the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Do you know that when you put your faith in the Lord Jesus, he forgives your sins? If you have trusted Christ to be your Savior, you are forgiven. What's the worst thing you've ever done? He forgives you. Why? Because Jesus died for that sin. The penalty of your sin was paid by the blood of the Son of God. And then it gets transferred, not the penalty, but his righteousness gets transferred or imputed to everyone who believes. It's unbelievable. And yet it's true. That's why it's the good news. And we've been given the forgiveness of sins. How? In accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. So how are you to forgive people? Well, he forgive us redemptively. In him we have redemption. He's forgiven us redemptively. God's forgiveness redeems us out of something into something else. So when you forgive a person, you are able to forgive them redemptively, not just to no longer hate them, but to draw them out of the sin that they caused into a life of light and grace and peace. Do you see that? It's never just your, I forgive you now, I forget about you, go away from me for the rest of my life. It is a ministry of reconciliation, which is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. He's given us a ministry of reconciling brokenness. That when someone has sinned against me, I can put that sin on the cross of Jesus and forgive that person redemptively. He also forgives us richly. Not this sort of eh, stingy, miserly forgiveness. I'll give you a, a, a crumb of forgiveness like Ebenezer sitting there giving uh, his little guy, what's this guy's name, uh, Cratchit, giving him a little lump of coal, try to stay warm. Don't be miserly in your forgiveness. Be rich in your forgiveness. Why? How has God forgiven you? What is the monumental mountain of your sin against him? The incomprehensible distance between you and a holy God has been bridged by the love of Jesus. He's richly forgiven us. And finally, lavishly. You can forgive lavishly. This is insane, right? The world thinks this is dumb. Why would I forgive the person who hurts me? Why would I forgive the person who sinned against me? Why? Because God in Christ has forgiven you. Why would you be kind? Because it is by the kindness of God that you were led to repentance. Why would I be tender-hearted? Because God has been tender-hearted toward you. And so be tender-hearted toward those who have hurt you. This is the gospel. So some of you will, uh, will know, if you grew up in, in my era, there's a lady named Corey Ten Boom who wrote a book called The Hiding Place. If you've never read it, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. She was a Dutch watchmaker who lived with his uh, two aunts and her sister and her dad. And uh, they hid Jews during World War II. She was born in uh, 1892. And so she would have been, whatever, 40-something, almost 50-something, I guess, when 50, whatever the numbers are there, older. 50, doesn't really matter, 52, when the war started. So they hid a lot of Jews. Uh, by some estimates, over 800 people. A little room in their house is they kind of this underground railroad of getting people out of the Netherlands where they were. And they were finally caught. 
and sent to Ravensbrück, a concentration camp where her dad and her sister died. She was not a little girl when she did this. She was in her mid-50s when she went to this concentration camp, right? So after the war, Corey Ten Boom goes around uh, teaching in, in, at churches, and uh, she writes in her book, The Hiding Place, about this encounter she had with uh, a former SS guard. It's a little long, so bear with me. But I think it gives us a wonderful, incredible, very, very powerful picture of what forgiveness looks like in real time. Because it isn't easy. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS guard, who had stood guard at the shower door in the processing center at Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. Betsy is her sister. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein. He said, to think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. This is a German concentration camp guard, okay? His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who preached so often to the people in Blumendahl, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled up through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile, I struggled to raise my hand, and I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. So again, I breathed the silent prayer, Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. And still I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness is not an emotion, I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Do you hear me? I want you to think about this in relationship to your marriages, to your children, to your coworkers, to your neighbors. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one outstretched to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. And for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with the command, the love itself. You have never touched so the ocean of God's love as when you forgive your enemies. This is the kind of forgiveness that we're called to. Not just some sort of lighthearted, mamby-pamby, I'm going to write you a text forgiveness. It is grasping the hand of the guard at the concentration camp where your sister died. That is the gospel. It is forgiving the unforgivable because Christ forgave the unforgivable in us. It is redemptive. 
It is restorative, but it is not easy. You may have to make a choice of the will to do some kind of wooden thing out of obedience, and God will reward it because he is working in you to redeem people to himself. Corey Ten Boom talked later about, later in her, a little bit later in her life, she was struggling to forgive someone else for something. And a Lutheran pastor told her that when you pull the rope of a big church bell, it swings that bell one way. Ding dong, ding dong. And as long as you yank that rope, that bell will gong. Forgiveness is like that. If you continue to yank the rope of bitterness and anger and rage and just hateful thoughts toward people, if you continue to yank that rope, the gonging of that bitterness will resonate in your heart. When you let go of it and walk away, it may take a while. That bell may ding and dong for a while, but eventually it will stop ringing. And one day you'll have that final dong of bitterness and the Lord will release you from it and you can walk in freedom. So as we close in worship, I want to just give you a moment to pour your heart out to the Lord. Is there someone you need to forgive? Do you have bitterness in your heart against a person? Do you have anger? Do you have this seething wrath that's cooking inside of your soul? Is there something that you need to give over to the Lord and replace it with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can come to you not on the basis of our own works, but on the basis of the finished work of Christ on the cross. We serve a Redeemer. And yet in the redemption that you have won for us, you require us to walk in obedience to you. Please help us do that. We pray as Corey Ten Boom did in the crisis of the moment, Lord, give me your forgiveness for them. Lord, give me your kindness. Give me your tenderheartedness toward this person and help me to step out in faith and to walk in forgiveness. So Lord, as we respond to you in worship, I pray that you would move in our hearts to walk out the forgiveness that you were calling us to and help us, Lord, to sing as only the redeemed can sing. In your name we pray, amen. Let's all stand up as we sing this final song just as a celebration of what God can do if we will give over to him all that is in our hearts. Holy, holy, 
on earth as in hell. Let it be done right here in my heart. Oh, Father, let your kingdom come. Holy, holy. Father, let your will be done on earth as in hell. Let it be done right here in my heart. It must this day our daily bread forgive us, forgive us as we forgive the ones who sinned against us. celebratory song. Gosh, okay. God has forgiven you for everything that you could ever do. Okay? On the, at Jesus' death on the cross, your sin was paid. Now let that cross mean something in your relationships with other people and forgive as he forgave you and go in peace. If you want to go to the new new member class, it's right back here. Walk out these doors and head back there if you're curious.